This week, a class about the Reconstruction-era South and the lost cause myth. That myth attempted to present the American Civil War from the perspective of Confederates in the best possible light. University of Alabama professor Leslie Gordon explains. There's always a tension in the lost cause and even some contradictions. So, right, this is a, it becomes a mythology, it's an ideology, so it's not always going to stand up to reason, obviously, it's not always going to be completely consistent. So there's this view, and that never changes, that the North had too much, and there's no way the South could have won. But there's also a view that Confederates did something wrong themselves. Professor Gordon also discusses how states' rights were commonly cited as a cause for the Civil War and the legacy of Confederate statues. We are going to jump a little bit ahead today from Reconstruction and get into the memory of the war. Uh, It's a very relevant topic and a complicated topic. But I want want us to kind of go through the end of the war itself and how the memory began to take shape. Uh, What we're going to see is that the people involved in writing the history of the Civil War initially were the people that experienced it. And they had their own views and beliefs, and that heavily left an imprint even on our current memory of the war. So I've I've got a quote from uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was president uh, in 1913, talking about just how uh, healing right, the post-period after the Civil War had been essentially saying everybody was united. Uh, That's 1913. That's 50 years after the end of the Civil War. So like I said, I want to step back and see how we ended up there with Wilson saying such a thing. Uh, The lost cause is a term I know you all have heard and we've talked about, and Karen Cox talks about it in her book that we'll be discussing next week and you'll be writing your papers on. Uh, it's a word that came from a book. So, you know, it's today used widely. But the man who's credited with coining it was a journalist, a Virginian, Edward Pollard, who edited the Richmond Examiner during the Civil War. He was a native Virginian and very bitter in the post-war period and looking back at the end of the war, he saw himself as sort of self-styled himself as the first historian of the Confederacy. He wanted to write what he believed to be is the most accurate history of the war. So he published a book in 1866, only, only a year after the war ended, The Lost Cause, A New Southern History of the War of the Confederates. And this is where we get a lot of our basic tenets of the lost cause. It's going to change, as we'll see. There's going to be some additions to it. But a couple of the things he set out right away. First, that secession was legal and justified. Secondly, that all Confederate soldiers were brave. And thirdly, and this may surprise you, I don't, I don't know, but... He was highly critical of the Confederate government and highly critical of Jefferson Davis. So it's not a a complete sort of whitewash and celebratory picture of the Confederacy. And this comes from his views as a journalist, where he was a critic of Jefferson Davis. And he essentially argues that the Confederates could have won if things were managed better. So he's a Virginian, and one of the things that's also important in understanding the lost cause and this early formation of a history of the war was putting Virginia in the center. And we've talked about this before, right? Um, It's still true today that Virginia gets a lot of attention. Obviously, there were so many battles there, and the capital of the Confederacy was there. But he is part of this movement, too, to ensure that Virginia gets special notice And this is an excerpt from the book where he talks about Pickett's Charge. And the image I'm using is actually from Alfred Wad, who was a northern journalist. But uh, even northerners are going to start picking up on this and promoting it as Pickett's Charge, this celebratory uh, 
military moment, right? The high tide of the Confederacy, exemplary of the devotion of Confederates. And this is him saying, right, the Virginians, um, the, the last part of this quote, there has been no such example of devotion to war. So that's also important in the lost cause, a lot of exaggeration. The idea that what happened to the South was unique and novel, and especially the role of Virginia. So I want to look at what a lot of historians view as phases of the lost cause. So Edward Pollard wrote his book, published in 1866, but it is going to start to change, and as I said, it's going to develop some new tenets as more people begin to believe in it and spread it. The first phase is right after the war, the first five years or so, right after the war. And it's marked by especially an emphasis on death, because that's probably not surprising, right, that the entire country had endured terrible suffering and loss, and Southerners, white Southerners, were focused on how much they had sacrificed in this war. And there's actual efforts to rebury bodies especially unknown soldiers, unknown Confederate soldiers left behind. Uh, There's really a movement from women to set out from places like here in Alabama to go to Virginia and bring bodies home and make sure they have a proper burial. The creation of Confederate Memorial Day, which I'm going to come back to in a little bit, but that happens very soon, and we still... Have it as a holiday here in Alabama. You might not know that, but it's still a state holiday. Uh, April 26th was the date chosen by most former Confederate states. What happened on April 26th? Do you all remember? Yeah, Josh. No. 1866. It's the second surrender. Right, Joe Johnston surrenders in North Carolina. Yeah, it might seem a little obscure, but but it was viewed as the sort of final death, you know, the the, the final death throes of the of the Confederates. Even though we had April 9th with Appomattox, um, June 3rd is also celebrated in some states. I believe in Texas it was. I'm not honestly sure if it still is. That was Jefferson Davis's birthday. So Jefferson Davis is one of these characters too that he's. Celebrated in some ways, but also made the villain. There was also a lot of soul searching in these first five years after the war. Why did the Confederacy fail? What do you think people at that time started saying to answer this question right after the war? Yeah. Um, That the North just had superior numbers and resources. Right, and that comes from Lee's final order, right? Mm -hmm. That the South had devotion and sacrifice and bravery, but it could not compete with numbers of the of the North. Any other thoughts on that? Um, There was probably a lot of scapegoating. So like even even you just said, um, Jefferson Mm -hmm. Davis got a lot of hate. Um, There was probably a lot of that to go around. You're that's a really good point. And what's interesting about this first phase, there's actually a lot of inner Yeah, blaming, just feeling that they did something wrong, these former Confederates, that there is, it's, there's always a tension in the lost cause and even some contradictions. So, right, this is a, it becomes a mythology, it's an ideology, so it's not always going to stand up to reason, obviously, it's not always going to be completely consistent. So there's this view, and that never changes, that the North had too much, and there's no way the South could have won, but there's also a view that Confederates did something wrong themselves, whether it's Jefferson Davis, but also there's a religious element to it that God let them down, or I should, let me back up, that they let God down, that they weren't faithful enough as Christians. There's a heavy um, religious element that also comes in this first phase of feeling that they're being punished. So, It doesn't, it's short, right, these kind of views and feelings. Um, And like I said, some of these aspects are going to stay there. But again, it builds on Lee's final order from April 9th or April 10th and Pollard and his book. So the second phase, 
you know, in these dates, I mean, they can go a little bit before and a little bit after, but this is a good way to remember the change. Um, the second phase underscores the centrality of Virginia, and it's led by a man named Jubal Early, who was one of Lee's generals. And he becomes an extremely outspoken defender of Lee. And he really takes the helm in ensuring, again, that Virginia will right, represent the best of the Confederacy. There's also something called the Southern Historical Society, which is actually founded in 1869 in Nashville. But by the time we get to 1876, this group publishes papers, publishes a journal, really, that is going to put in writing and circulate these views. So this is also part of why the Lost Cause becomes so omnipresent. It's not just one book or one event. It just goes in all these different ways to um, spread these ideas and get new supporters. So here we have now Pollard, um, it's not that he didn't talk about slavery. Slavery is just assumed to be, you know, in the idea of states' rights, that, that the Confederates were there to defend this institution, protect it, and states' rights were part of it. But we're going to start to see now is a shift in rejecting slavery as really having anything to do with the Civil War. And this starts to happen in the 1870s. And we start to see expressions of it in these papers, the Southern Historical Society papers. Uh, also, the heroes. We have men, you know, all Confederate soldiers are still considered brave, but two men in particular become almost godlike in how they're portrayed by lost causers, especially Jubal Early, Robert E. Lee, and Thomas Jonathan Jackson. I'm calling him TJJ, uh, Saul Jackson. They are going to become, right, these larger than life figures that did no wrong. And again, represented the best of the antebellum South. Hmm? Are there any other like main points we should focus on that they like maybe I guess use as excuses other than states' rights, like to excuse uh, rather than focusing on slavery? So excuses for not using slavery, not yeah. focusing on slavery. Well, yeah, that's a great question too. What is happening in the eighteen seventies? What's the context? Yeah, Josh. The, uh, the reconstruction is coming to an end. Reconstruction is going to be, we're going to see, yes, the kind of end of radical reconstruction and the, remember, the renewal of those conservative governments and the re- sort of redemption of the former Confederacy. And so there is disenfranchisement of black men. There's increase in violence, the rise. We saw the KKK come and go, but still other terroristic groups um, so even though they're going to say slavery had nothing to do with the war, there's definitely a broader context of um, you know, racial violence and controlling African Americans. Uh, and so that's also at work. It's interesting. Part of the contradiction, too, is the argument that a lot of these lost causes will make at the time, that even though slavery had nothing to do with the war, um, it was a good thing, right? So they want to defend it. But they don't want to focus on it. They don't really want to focus on slavery being the sole reason. It's about power and control and autonomy as Southerners. But we'll come, we'll come back to this point, too, a little bit. Yeah, so Sean? So just, like, the first point of maybe feeling guilty about slavery, is that, like, could you make that, like, claim, maybe? Uh, you know, I, look, I, I don't think white Southerners ever felt guilty about slavery in, at the time of slavery, um, I I don't know. What do you th- What do you, the rest of y'all think? Yeah. Do you think maybe that um, they were kind of looking ahead and trying to like say it wasn't about slavery, so that they could maybe look look be looked upon more favorably in the future? That's a great point too. And some people, yes, have thought that you know Jefferson Davis, others like him, write their own memoirs, and they also downplay the institution. But when I say that, you know, it's not. We don't want to lose track. Their, their, their views on, on African-Americans as, as being inferior, that doesn't change in any way. In fact, it's going to be more blatant. But they want to move away from the institution. It's almost like, yeah, slavery's gone, it's over, um, but African-Americans shouldn't be treated as equal, right? So like I said, th- these are some of the tensions there. And 
I, I just don't think there's much. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of guilt, honestly. Yeah. Do you think that um, the elimination of slavery as like the primary cause for the war was also, yeah, in part, like part of their attempt to say that they hadn't really lost? Because if if the war was all about slavery and now slavery no longer exists mm-hmm. as an institution, I mean that would be the most blatant characterization of the South being the loser of the battle when they want to keep promoting the fact that really like the Confederacy is still alive even though it's over. That's a great point. That is, I don't think I've heard that before, but I think it makes a lot of sense, yeah. That to even just want to move on from it and say it doesn't matter that it's gone, you know, that's not what it was about anyway. Yeah, very, very good. Yeah, Tate. Um, how, during the 1870s, with all, with all of this stuff starting to happen, what, how did the North view all of, like, the... Uh, the creation of the heroes, uh, the quote-unquote heroes of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And right, and that's part of what's so interesting about this. They will, many Northerners will start to embrace these ideas. White Northerners will start to embrace them in particular. African Americans are going to have their own sort of parallel memory and parallel story that's going to contrast sharply with the lost cause. Uh, and But they're very successful these individuals and groups, we'll see some groups, organizations, in spreading these ideas. And what a lot of historians have also looked at, David Blight wrote a great book on this, Race and Reunion, is this is also the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, um, where there's a sort of consensus of, again, of just of white Americans coming together to celebrate these heroes and, again, not wanting to talk about slavery, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, and it's kind of certainly, a, it's absolutely a betrayal of some of the right initial ideals coming out of the Civil War, abolitionist and African-Americans themselves and the hopes they had. But it's definitely a shift and a change of this view becoming dominant across the country. Why, why were they so easy, why were they so quick to accept viewing the, the people that they had just fought against, that they that they have just betrayed them as, as heroes. Well, I don't want to say, and I'm going to get to that a little bit, but it's not completely an easy transition or easy acceptance. It's not. There's pushback. There's definitely, one historian calls this the one cause, meaning the cause of the union. They push back on it openly, directly, and reject it. But with time... This view takes dominance. Why, why do you think it is? Let me put this back on you. Why do you think it happens so quickly? What is your sense? Any? Um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I feel like it's, it sort of confuses me on both sides because for the North, they just defeated these people, and then the South, they're like, oh, these people... These people just lost. So why should, so why should we want to keep this ide- ideology of losers alive? Well, they're right, but they're not causing calling them losers, right? They're they're celebrating them as the like I said, of really they're they're flipping it so that they're 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 heroes. Yeah. Uh, about that question, maybe a possible answer. Um, I mean, they fought each other back and forth for, I mean, the the whole Civil War. Maybe like it's maybe they think it's kind of their way of healing in a way for like putting for, the hard times behind them. Maybe for Northerners. For Northerners, because yes, it was yeah. back and forth. I mean, they bloodied each other up pretty good. Well, in that quote I showed you with Wilson, I have more of a speech to show you too. Is that there is this this idea of let's move on, right? Let's heal the country. Let's unify the country, and and there is this. Embrace, and I know it seems odd and strange that Northerners would accept this, but they do. They start to do it. And I think some of it, too, honestly, is the Northerners, even though they have their own version and their own, they have the GAR, which is the Grand Army of the Republic. They have veterans' organizations. They're, they're publicly writing. They're writing books. They're, they're giving speeches about the Union cause. Um, they are not as organized, and they're not as intent on making sure that this one version is the one that stays dominant. Yeah. When you say union, do you mean like the majority of the union or like their 
like parties in support of this? I'm, yeah, like, good catch. I'm, I'm saying the North. I'm saying, <laughs> which can be tricky to define. I'm saying, you know, maybe, uh, let's say, ex-union veterans or, you know, again, white Northerners uh, who endured and experienced civil war. But this, again, is going to be a national change and national acceptance of the lost cause. Yeah. I don't know if this is a part of it, but I know that Jubal Early was very dismissive and critical of the Union generals as well, especially towards Grant. Is this a part of the reason why maybe Robert E. Lee is so remembered while somebody like Grant isn't? I would I, I would say yes. I mean, it is surprising that until recently, now some of this has started to really change. There's been a new, a renewed interest in Grant. Some of you might have seen the documentary about him. He's had new biographies. The idea that, right, why are we not focusing more on somebody like Grant when Lee becomes, again, heralded and, and celebrated so much? So some of these, these are great questions, y'all. Let's, let's keep moving. I'm going to come back to some of them as we go along. Um, I want to also mention that not only are there going to be heroes, but there's going to be, we mentioned Davis, but another general who's, Confederate general, who's actually becomes a scapegoat for everything that went wrong, especially at Gettysburg, is James Longstreet. That's J.L. So this is where, again, like I said, the, the contradictions come in. He is seen as somebody who was a traitor. He challenged Lee. He purposely was slow at Gettysburg. Uh, he also becomes a Republican, which is going to be an unforgivable sin for a lot of these ex-Confederates. And they cast him out. And he will push back himself and try to counter this. But not every single Confederate is celebrated. So like I said, there are some... Um, there are some exceptions. And again, they are going to double down, though. Even with that said, even with Longstreet being blamed for the entire defeat at Gettysburg, they still come back on the pages of the Southern Historical Society papers and other ways to say, well, you know, the North had too many men anyway, and we were never going to, we were never going to win. Okay, let's go to the last phase, um, which is going to go to, this is where it really gets organized and, like I said, even more focused as a, me- as a message. Um, these are three groups, the United Confederate Veterans, founded in 1889, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, founded in 1894, and the Sons of Confederate Veterans, founded in 1896. So notice the dates. Now we've moved into the 1880s and 1890s. So, of course, UCV, these are the actual veterans, but the other two groups are the children of veterans, They have to prove their genealogy to be a member. And the UDC in particular is incredibly active, and that's what Karen Cox tells us more about. Um, And their message is not just building again on all the things we just mentioned, but that the Confederacy is something to emulate for the world, that they had something unique and special that not just other Americans should look at and admire, but the world should admire. So this is, again, we're getting into more myth-making, more right exaggeration of what really happened during the war. But like I said, they're incredibly effective and focused on their message, and they start to get into um, cr- uh, creating or effect, uh, influencing school books. Uh, there's going to be, of course, all kinds of commemorative activities, monument dedications, parades, speeches, Women are central to a lot of this movement, of course, with the UDC. This is a picture of UDC members from Washington State, Tacoma. So this is when I talk to you about national. This has gone from coast to coast. There are members across the country joining. And again, they've got to prove their genealogy somehow to write a, a Confederate veteran. And they are speaking in one voice in many ways, in wanting to promote and celebrate the Confederacy. And there is this renewed emphasis on white supremacy. They're not making any bones. They're not, they're not making any sort of uh, excuses. They're not in any way uh, downplaying their white, uh, view, their white supremacist views. It's pretty blatant. If you read any of the uh, documents from this time these groups put out. And why is that, right? Do you all know what's happening in the 1890s? The suffrage movement is going to come, I mean, it's it's happening, yes. Um, 
suffrage for women comes in 1920. But 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 you're pointing out something too that's important about these women. There's a club movement organization, especially of um, white middle class women, and they're becoming activists and they have all kinds of. And this is happening across the country. So the UDC, it's not unique in that sense, you know, to be this uh, successful, really, in in their purpose. Yeah, Josh. Um, are you thinking of Plessy uh, v. Ferguson? Yeah, that's going to come in 1896, right? And what did that do, remember? That basically made segregation legal. Yeah, the Supreme Court, right, said that segregation was, you know, separate but equal. And so this... This is where we're seeing, again, of course, continued disenfranchisement, continued violence against African-Americans. And, and like I said, these groups are, are just, they're fusing their memory of the Confederacy with white supremacy. They're, again, they're making really no uh, bones about it. I wanted to mention LaSalle Corbell Pickett. As you all know, I wrote my first book about her and her husband. She is part of this. She is central to it. And using her own influence as the wife of a former Confederate general, George Pickett dies in 1875, but she goes on for 50 years. And she has a whole career as uh, what, what I call a professional widow. She just makes money off of him, and she makes money off of his memory. And here's some books. She wrote many, many books. This is about Gettysburg, and she talks about him, right, leading his men into the flames of battle with chivalrous lightness and grace. Um, the real George Pickett? No. Nobody would say he moved about with lightness and grace, but she makes him into this, again, idealized, chivalric uh, Southern man, and that's also part of the message of these groups. Um, I want to, before I get into veterans, I want to ask real quick about women. Why do you think these women are so involved? Why do they play such a role? Yeah. Is it maybe because their hus- like they watch their husbands and like sons go go into battle for all these years and put their heart into it, and so like when they if they don't come back, they feel like they have something to remember them by by fighting for whatever they fought for. I, that's a good point, Justin. I mean, I do think it's this is the thing with LaSalle with wanting to have a positive image and. Um, memory of their husbands, and uh, increasingly, right, it'll be the fathers and uncles and even grandfathers um, to promote it. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, we we talked about that. There's there's suffering and loss again for so much of of the Confederacy. But remember, women. We talked about them and how important they were to the Confederate cause. Shelby. Well, women during this time were so desperate for power, and this gave them a way to have political influence while still fitting into gender norms. Well, it's, yeah, like... supportive wives, then. Yeah, about... It's, it's definitely um, speaking to the movement towards suffrage, and this is a way for them. Also, remember, they can do this... Like, if they're... Initially, there is some pushback. I don't want it to sound like Northerners are just forgetting everything that they fought for and just welcoming ex-Confederates. They're not. Again, there is pushback. And there's even, of course, during the early days of Reconstruction, radical Reconstruction... Federal troops are still in the South, and you can't just freely, as a Confederate veteran, walk around in your uniform, for example. Uh, you could be arrested for that. So these women find moments to kind of move into spaces where it's, they, they're not going to get in trouble to talk about con- their Confederate veteran husbands or, again, sons or what have you. And also they're building on a very gendered tradition of mourning and focusing on the ritualistic of, of burial. They've started that from the get-go, and they're just going to keep going. Okay, so let's talk about veterans generally, not just Confederate veterans. So the Lost Cause, well-established, very clear message, and like I said, it's taking off nationally. Um, The veterans themselves are going to want to tell their story as well. And this is an image from what's thought to be the very first regimental history published. It was actually published in 18... 63. Um, it's a New York regiment. And these regimentals are going to take off throughout this time period we're looking at, the first, the latter part of the 19th century, in recording what happened to these units, but also um, celebrating, in very much celebrating their unit's um, history. It doesn't mean they're all celebratory, though. There are examples of these regimentals, frankly, being pretty truthful about 
the challenges of war, the suffering of war. Uh, and so they kind of get dismissed often as just being useless as far as his real history. But if you really look at them and pay attention to them, they are giving us firsthand accounts of the men who experienced the Civil War. And then there's published uh, memoirs, diaries, letters. Sam Watkins is one of the most famous. He published uh, Company H in the 18, 1890s or 1882, right? Um, he is from Tennessee and writes about his experiences here in the Western theater. And as a historical document, as a historical, uh, you know, it's reliability. You have to look at it with some skepticism. He doesn't always uh, tell the unvarnished truth of what happened to him, but it's, it is, again, a firsthand account. And like I said, these men want to, they want to tell their story and they want to add to this formation of the narrative about the Civil War. And much of it is, that stress again on heroism, on sacrifice. And what also is happening, and I mentioned this already, we got into a little bit, is the generals get involved, the officers get involved. It's not, you know, not just men down in the ranks. Many of them will be involved with um, all kinds of activities, but the officers and the generals at the very top, this is a picture of U.S. Grant um, sitting, writing his memoirs. He's dying from throat cancer. He finished his memoirs just before he passed away very much hoping that that would help support his family. And James Longstreet, who is, again, the culprit, the scapegoat for the Confederates, the scapegoat for the lost causers, he writes his own memoir and the pages of the Southern Historical Society papers. And they're fighting with each other. They're disagreeing what really happened. And it gets often really trivial, you know, what happened at a very specific point on the battlefield. And who is telling the truth? This is a lot of the discussion um, amongst these veterans. And it, if you look at it today, right, as a scholar, you have to, like I said, go through it and comb through it and understand the context for these publications. But they are full of a wealth of information about the war and, again, giving you firsthand accounts. And there's the, such this desire on the part of many of these people that they want to be remembered. They don't want to feel that what they did was in vain, and they don't want to feel that future generations like us are going to have no idea what they went through. So that's veterans, women, uh, right? The lost cause is, is making its way through all of this. And then we also have, of course, Memorial Day, which we still celebrate. That became a holiday due to veterans, due to Union veterans. But when, like I mentioned, there's also a Confederate version of it, which actually predates the Union one, um, the United States one, I should say. Decoration Day is another term for this holiday. And more recently, it's been recognized that former slaves probably were the first to mark graves in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, in 1865. They were marking graves of Union prisoners. And formally, right, decorating the graves, so Decoration Day. The other slide, the other picture I have here, those are, that's a parade, um, more of a traditional parade that we still have today. I, you know, you all know I grew up in Connecticut, and we always had Memorial Day Parade. It was a big deal in my community um, to march in it, to be part of it. I don't know Memorial Day because there is the Confederate version of it down here. It might not have the same um, relevance. But this is another way for these veterans to come out, be recognized, remember, um, reminisce about what they went through, and like I said, help help create a narrative that they did something, like I said, important and significant and should not be forgotten. And of course, monuments. So I'm going to say we're going to get much more into you know the current controversy about Confederate monuments um, next week after you all finish Karen Cox's book and write your papers. But I want to acknowledge that monument building was not unique to the South. It's going to happen across the country. These are two monuments actually from my home state of Connecticut. Uh, the one to your left, I guess on the screen, um, is considered the earliest monument um, perhaps in the country. It's hard to prove 100%, but you can see the, the design, right? It's basic. It's, it looks kind of like a miniature Washington Monument. And in many ways, the emphasis at that time, too, would be on death. This came out 
in the estimate it came out in during the war itself, during 1863, to mark the um, deaths of soldiers from this small town in Connecticut. The one on the other side is um, of the figure is supposed to be a veteran um, being comforted by a child, and it's uh, dates from 1867. So this is the shift we're going to start to see away from the kind of just stone, uh, right? basic, you know, almost funeral-type monument to figures that have, like, a story and a message. And um, what's also interesting at the same time is we start to see more soldiers put in stone. They also become more generic at the same time. And this is happening, again, across the country, a very generic, universal image. So the idea that every Confederate soldier was heroic that will also be the message for the Union, too, for the United States, that all Civil War soldiers were brave and loyal. But what we also see in this kind of generic image is a loss of individuality. This is a monument from North Carolina, and you can find this exact same cookie-cutter monument, the image, in communities all over the country. This became big business. Once we get into the 1890s and turn of the century, that's really the high point of monument building. Of course, Confederate and Union veterans are dying. And there's an even, uh, there's an intensifying belief that, again, the story of the Civil War has to be told. And the story needs to be one of heroism and sacrifice. The other thing that starts to happen, and a term you'll hear, and I still hear, is that they all fought for what they believed in. They all fought for a cause. Now, the lost cause, we, you know, that in some ways is kind of vague, lost cause, but we know what it meant. It was pretty clear what it meant coming out of the aftermath of the war. But even for Union veterans and their descendants going forward, the discussion will be that they fought for what they believed in. And not a lot of acknowledgement, well, what did that really mean? And what about people that didn't want to serve, right? What about conscription? What about desertion? What about demoralization? That, there's no room for that in this narrative that's starting to really stick. The other thing I want to point out in this monument is you don't really get a sense that this soldier has suffered or gone through anything terrible, right? It's, it's, he's kind of frozen in time. His uniform is clean and looks, he looks well-fed. So, right, we're, we're missing that, too. We're missing the real, in, uh, again, sufferings and challenges of soldiering. So that's where, like I said, the memory is it's becoming more sanitized, more simplistic, and nationalized. And these are all these different ways it happens, yeah. Um, I've kind of heard this opinion a little bit, and you saying about, like, how the soldier was, like, clean and, like, nice-looking kind of made me think of it, um, that the Civil War was kind of necessary for America to progress as a country more. Like, I don't know, like, is that something that's popular, or is that just kind of, like, an observed now, like, from a historian's point of view? You've heard that? Mm-hmm. You've heard that? Have You've heard it from... Just like teachers in the past, really, without much of an explanation of why. Why? Have the rest of you heard this idea that the Civil War was necessary? Hmm. I don't know what to make of that. Um, why was it necessary to good? No. I mean, I guess like looking at like history, especially like European history, which you know a lot of the people at the time they were pretty much came from there. Like, there's a history of civil wars in European countries, mm-hmm. so I guess they kind of apply that to America. Like, well, they had to have one at some point. That could be an idea for it. Yeah, so go ahead. I've also heard that more than it being necessary, it was just inevitable. Yes, And like, yes. there was going to have to be some kind of ultimate answer to the question of slavery. Yes. Um, and it wasn't going to be like popular sovereignty or, you know, these kind of give-and-take compromises that had led up during the antebellum period and that some kind of final answer was going to have to come. And so I've heard teachers say that, like, I mean, the Civil War is kind of the culmination of all of that. Yeah, no, totally. And and it's an answer to, you know, sometimes you'll still hear this idea of 
well, slavery was going to fade away, and most white Southerners didn't own slaves, and so it was the aggression of the North. This is this is sort of two echoes of the lost cause that they're victims, and that it didn't really have to be this way. But that's interesting to hear more of. That to me, it's a difference between being inevitable and being necessary. Um, that's really intriguing. Yeah, John. Um, I think it kind of had to happen because it, even in like other wars like the American Revolution, it's always some form of two different branches of elites fight each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all, like, elite groups want power, and they have to get that by wiping out the other elite group. And I think it's just kind of, it was just inevitably going to happen. It's, some it's, form it's, it's, it is just kind of a cynical and depressing view, isn't it, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that it had to happen or that it had to happen to end slavery. Um, yeah, well, that, that's really interesting. It gives me some food for thought. Uh, I want to talk about this monument for a minute, and then we'll, we'll, we're going to move on to some of the more of the myth-making. But, um, again, remember, monuments, they, they, they start out early. Again, that Connecticut monument may well have dated from the war itself. There's a monument, one of the very first ones, on a battlefield at the Battle of um, First Bull Run or First Manassas. And then there are more and more and more, and they're changing the landscape. They are not just, of course, in cemeteries. They're in public places, especially, you know, courthouse squares and parks. And, and so we're living through a time, of course, where those monuments, many of them for Confederate monuments, are coming down. But they're all coming up. They're all being erected and, like I said, omnipresent during this time of 20, 30, 40 years after the war. This monument, though, dates from 1951, so it kind of pushes us into the 20s. It definitely pushes us into the 20th century. The reason I wanted to highlight it for a minute, obviously, because we, we went, many of us, most of us, many of us, went to Vicksburg, and we've been talking about Vicksburg. Um, we didn't get a chance to see the monument when we visited, but it was put there um, largely due to the efforts of the UDC. Uh, it cost quite a bit of money to put it up. And there was a special ceremony when it was dedicated in July of 1951. Um, it is not a coincidence that it's 1951, right? Do you all know what was happening in the South in 19, 1950s? Yeah. Civil rights movement? Right, civil rights movement. Um, there's been... We, we have the aftermath of Plessy versus Ferguson, and it's not you know separate but equal. Jim Crow South has been reality... But there have been, you know, pushes and attempts and, and activism from African Americans as well as uh, white Americans to do away with those restrictions and to provide and restore citizenship and voting rights to African Americans. Um, and this is where we start to see that alignment with a lot of the memory of the Confederacy to politics, you know, nationwide. But you can see here these couple of these quotes that I took out of the speech. This is a state senator, and I wanted to draw your attention to what he says here about, um, I'm going to have to read it from the screen real quick, um, about Alabama soldiers, right? He's talking, he's, he's speaking to them as if they're listening, the dead there at Vicksburg. Alabama soldiers, you did not fight in vain. The ideal you fought for, the principles you believed in, we still fight for and believe in. States' rights. So states' rights, there it is again. Uh, And we think this fight will never be settled until it is settled right, because states' rights are right rights. And what are the states' rights about, again, in 1950? Civil rights, right? Sorry. Segregation. Yeah, exactly, segregation. And we're standing almost right where we're very close to where Governor George Wallace stood himself and said, you know, segregation forever, right? Um, so if this push for like states' rights and this you know states' rights sentiment still exists, um, is there any continuing thoughts of secession um, or any continuing just sort of general ideas that that's something that could happen again, or has that just been given up? Now or then? Then. Um, I think you're always... This is a kind of perennial uh, view of, you know, the South and even other parts of the country. Let's just secede. Uh, but it's not, it, it's not anywhere close to right, it becoming a reality. Sure, there are still threats of it. And it goes back to, again, 
um, all this focus on the idea that the Confederates were right, that the whole idea of the Confederacy was right, and that, like I said, that should be emulated. And like I said, the interesting thing that's happening is there are allies, there are people that support this idea across the country. So it's not just the South sort of speaking out, they're finding um, supporters in other places. I'm from New Hampshire, and our state legislature actually just recently voted down a bill that was introduced to secede. Um, there we go. Yes. So, yeah, yes. It's, it's still around. I didn't know New yeah. Hampshire was talking about it, but every so often, I know Texas keeps saying they're going to secede. Texas formally tried in 2008. They keep trying. I don't see it really happening. Yeah. But, but it's not, it is a dream still for some folks, yeah. I wanted to also just real quick talk about the second section here. Um, he's talking about those soldiers. May it long be a reminder of those who see it of the unanswering devotion to study the valor and courage of these men who gave their lives for a cause they thought was right, the cause they knew was right. So again, the cause, it's vague, but that it was right and that they're brave. And this is, of course, you know, applauded and it published it's published in the newspapers and it it becomes like i said it sort of becomes an orthodoxy really for a lot of um white southerners to to believe this and to accept it as there's no other way to think about the confederacy and the soldiers themselves so this gets back to tate's point about just trying to figure out what's going on with the north and why are they accepting these things yeah i don't want in any way um convey the idea that Northerners just take all this and move on with their lives and say, you know, essentially, yes, we believe the lost cause, we accept it. They, they don't. There is division. There is debate. And, of course, it becomes very political. It's political from the get-go, and it becomes even more politicized on and off through this era, really throughout the era, uh, in varying ways. The... For the Union and for the United States, for the victors, there is certainly the message of saving the Union. But remember, the war became a war to end slavery really later when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. We know that a lot of white Northerners were not supportive of ending slavery. And so it is complicated in understanding the centrality of slavery for the Union cause. So that's going to come out in some of the memories, too. That's going to come out in the way it's it's recounted. What did the North have to gain, essentially, by, like, some people accepting the Lost Cause movement? Was it like seeing the South as a a formidable opponent? Or, like, what do they have to gain from accepting that? That's a great question. What do you think? What do you think Southerners or Northerners gained? Um, I mean, I guess because at the time there were still the racial hostilities. So I, I wonder if that's like a, them sort of accepting that or more of it's like, you know, they don't want all that bloodshed to be in vain, that it wasn't just like a, a meaningless war. For Northerners. Mm-hmm. What, what do the rest of you all think? What, why would Northerners embrace this and what would they gain by it? No. I mean, it's like you said the the North wasn't really, you know, super in favor of, oh, let's, you know, end slavery in the South either. It's not like, you know, it's a false statement to say that the war, at least originally, wasn't about slavery, for them at least. Right. So, you know, especially when you, you come to, you know, it, there, there's still, you know, racism and segregation stuff up North. So when it sort of gets to that point, then they're saying, okay, we didn't just fight for this. We fought for, you know, our country rather than this thing that we don't necessarily believe. Well, and again, it's, it's, real, it's real challenges and real um, debates and, and intensive discussions over, of course, the, the, the civil rights of African Americans, of, of, of what to do about the Jim Crow South, what to do about, about uh, segregation. And this is not going away in the national spotlight. And I think for, you know, it's, you know, other historians have written about this in the 20th century. Uh, this becomes a way to kind of push aside those concerns and those, that activism and those, you know, desire and demands for civil rights on the part of African Americans for, really for white Americans to just 
play it down and then embrace the lost cause. Um, but it's, yeah, I know, it's not easy to understand, and I think we're still sorting it out, what happened. Um, and we know what happened. We know that this, that lost cause really becomes dominant in so many ways. I remember hearing some of these things growing up in Connecticut. You know, I probably have told you all, I became enamored with much of these stories of the sort of, you know, Old South. And let's not forget, too, what's going to happen. It's not just, I'm talking today quite a bit about, you know, monuments and publications and parades. There's also media. There's movies that are going to play a role. The Birth of a Nation, Gone with the Wind, they're going to have the same message. And it's, it's very appealing for many white Americans to watch Gone with the Wind and feel that, it, that there really was something unique and admirable about the antebellum South that is an escape from their own worlds, an escape from the changes of the late 20th century, right, with immigration and urbanization and all these things that are happening in this country. It, it just becomes like a fantasy, right? go into like acceptance is kind of like putting it behind because I mean you really you can talk about the philosophy all day long but at the end of the day like you're just now rebuilding the country you have to worry about reintegrating the south into congress you are now looking at foreign policy again you're trying to get your economy back up and running which now that we also have the issue of there's no more free labor in the south that the price for cotton is about to get a lot more expensive, that there's going to be a lot more economic changes and a lot more trade changes. So I feel like some of it was also like, we're just going to accept it because we have to move on from trying to think about it philosophically and try to look more practically and logistically. Yeah, I think I think that's true for, like I said, for, for a lot of white Americans who just, you know, remember, you know, after the war ended, there was real war weariness. The radicals had all that power and they tried to, bringing change, and, and African-Americans themselves were pushing forward. And there was really a kind of um, a, a, almost like a, a feeling of, of just, yeah, not wanting to talk about it anymore, not wanting to deal with it anymore, turning the page. And so that, I think, was an advantage for the lost cause to kind of fill a vacuum where um, other parts of the country, they didn't want to relive what happened. They didn't want to go back and necessarily even march around and talk about you know, some aspects of the war. And so, the, but the South did. They wanted to keep talking about it in a very specific way. And like I said, it fulfilled political agendas and other agendas of, of, of the day. Yeah. It was certainly later on, but it couldn't have hurt the movement that Birth of a Nation was screened at the White House, right, and legitimized yes. really by President Wilson. And Wilson said it was history made with lightning. I'm not going to get the exact quote, but... Um, yes, and he is a native Virginian. Uh, he uh, ha- he was a lost causer. I mean, his views on the war were very much in step with all these things we've been talking about. And you're right, he gave his blessing to that movie, which is atrociously racist, and was there were there were protests against it, you know, by by African Americans. But it was shown, and a lot of people watched it, and it had incredible power. You know, right? We know that movies and and television shows and things like that, they have power, sort of popular culture, in changing people's minds and thinking that things are a certain way, even when they're not necessarily that way. You know, the narrative that has come out of all this, it's just a, it's a, like I said, it's a simplistic narrative, and it's one that, you know, it's got villains, it's got heroes, um, and it just seemed to be a way to explain what happened and why. But it wasn't necessarily... History. Now, I do want to, of course, acknowledge that African Americans were not being silent. They were not just letting this happen and, and sort of, um, you know, in any way uh, refusing to challenge it. But, of course, it's difficult and it's even dangerous to challenge some of these views. Uh, this is a quote from Frederick Douglass who spoke at, they still called it Decoration Day, in 1878. And he was blunt. There's, you can find other examples of him saying things like this. You know, the famous orator and former slave. And he's saying to the audience in New York City, uh, there was a right and a wrong side to the late war, which no sentiment ought to cause us to forget. You know, the sort of sentimentality, this, again, this romanticism of 
the South and the Confederacy, you know, he is saying bluntly and directly, you know, I'm not going to forget and we shouldn't forget. He's speaking to the audience. There just are not monuments and, and, and other examples of, sort of, you know, memories that as much counter the lost cause. Um, one of the few exceptions is this monument that's in Boston uh, to Robert Gould Shaw, who was the commander of the 54th Massachusetts, the African-American regiment coming out of Massachusetts. Famously, he died at Fort Wagner. But even this monument, the focus is on, is on him. He is on his horse, and his men, if you can make it out, are sort of in the, in the background. Uh, this was dedicated in 1897, but it's unique. And, you know, in studying memories of the war, especially um, former enslaved people, there's also the fact that many of them didn't want to remember slavery and what they went through and to publicly look to talk about it. You know, it is still an issue for the National Park Service to ensure uh, a diverse audience visits their battlefields and their other parks and, you know, historical places uh, that commemorate the Civil War, because really until recently, and some of this started to shift and change, is it was, much of it was a message of the lost cause. And also a message of the idea of heroic white men all believing in their cause and all doing the right thing. And there wasn't much allowance, right, for the ambiguities of the Civil War and for the role of African Americans. That has started to shift, not without controversy. There's lots of people that aren't that happy this has happened. But their story is often forgotten. Yep. Did any soldiers push back on this very sanitized version and say, like, hey, I experienced some really brutal things and I want that acknowledged or I feel like it's in vain? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I don't I won't don't want y'all to think that, yeah, yes. And even in the book that I did on this Connecticut regiment, the 16th Connecticut, they debate within themselves about the story that starts to be told about them and monuments and who, you know, even who's, they end up at Andersonville, who's going to get to go down to Andersonville and dedicate the monument they put there. Um, they have a member of their unit, a, mem- a man named Ira Forbes, who starts spreading the lost cause. He was from Connecticut, served in a Connecticut regiment, and he becomes an apologist for the Confederacy, and he's basically ostracized from the regiment. So yes, again, there are plenty of examples, but we don't hear these examples, and they're not part of the public story. That's what I'm getting at. Okay, right. Um, So we're back to Gettysburg, and again, this era, we we took a bit of a detour with the 1950s monument, but but mostly I wanted to, to track these years the first years right after the Civil War and the early part of the 20th century where we have the most monuments going up or a high point of monument building. We see the lost cause ascendant. Uh, We see these veteran groups coming together and they are reunifying and really, again, fusing around a very specific story of heroism and sacrifice. And that's best exemplified by the reunion at Gettysburg in 1913, where Wilson gave his speech. This is a picture of a Union veteran and a Confederate veteran literally shaking hands. And there's some great footage that you can see of this reunion where they reenact Pickett's charge. They, they're old men, right? So they can't run across the field, but they walk and something like 50,000 people attended this reunion. And the message was unity. The message was unity. And forgetting or downplaying division, hatred, anger, bitterness. At least for white Americans. So here's a little more of Wilson's speech, which I just think is so insightful. So let's just take a minute to to look at this. I'm gonna gonna go ahead and read it. How am I doing with time? Okay. Okay. Um, What have they meant, meaning the last 50 years? They have meant peace and union and vigor and the maturity and might of a great nation. The last 50 years, he's just saying, the United States has done wonderfully well. It's come together, it's been strong. 
how wholesome and healing the peace has been. We have found one another again as brothers and comrades in arms. Brothers in arms. That's another very common term that you still hear today about the Civil War. Brother against brother. It kind of speaks to the point, I think you were making, Hallie, about this being necessary, right? He seems to be echoing that. Uh, right? No longer, wait, commerce in arms, enemies no longer, generous friends rather than our, rather, rather our battles long past the quarrel forgotten, except that we shall not forget the splendid valor, there it is, the manly devotion of the men that enraged against each other, now grasping hands and smiling into each other's eyes. How complete the union has become, how dear to us all. So forget the bitterness, remember the valor. So I'm going to end with this. This is the accepted narrative that, again, had evolved and formed from the war itself through the, into the 20th century and is still with us in many ways. What was forgotten out of that narrative, and what do you think still needs to be remembered? Yep, Josh. I would say probably the uh, PTSD. The, um, there were people that were addicted to drugs after the war and people that lost their limbs and they couldn't, they couldn't function hardly after the war. That's right. There's no allowance for that in this story, in those monuments, in the... It's not that you're not going to find it. You can find it if you start looking. I have discovered that myself in my own scholarship. But, but you're not generally going to find these stories if you just kind of pay attention again to the public memory, the public narrative of, this, the, the, like you said, the real suffering, especially psychological, which some you know, historians push back on that we can even talk about it. But we know what happened. The men tell us this, if you pay attention. Yep. I think uh, one thing is, as well, that both sides like, fought each other, and we shouldn't like, go to another civil war, because we saw other countries in ruins, and we had like take a decade, a couple decades to rebuild the South. Right. So, to, yes, and yes, to remember that the South, there was real destruction and loss. Um, I'm not sure. You, do you think that's been forgotten? I just, yeah, because, like, the country was in ruins in every stage of it, in the uh, international stage, from domestic and whatnot, this was in ruins afterwards. Well, remember when we talked about Georgia and, and Sherman's march? Um, you know, there was real destruction that he left, but not as much as some of it gets exaggerated, too. Um, but, yes, and you, I recognize your point about, you know, we looked at some of those images, right, like of Richmond just burned to the ground. You know, Atlanta was burned to the ground, um, largely accidentally, but still. And it's it's all been, you all know Atlanta, it's all rebuilt, right? It has that, I don't know if it still has a slogan, too busy to hate or something, but that, you know, it's just sort of tried to move on from from its, from its past, so recognizing, yeah, some of that. Um, but I think, right, you want to balance it, I would say, with, um, again, you know, why it happened and the, the fact that, you know, we don't want to, I think, pull back into just the victimization of the the Confederates, because that's that that you do see some stress on the destruction, especially like I'm thinking of like a movie like Gone with the Wind, which really tries to highlight that of being victimized. Yeah. yeah. Uh, instead of remembering like the people like as legends, like kind of like with the lost cause, mm-hmm. we kind of need to like remember them, I guess, as just people. Yeah. And like you know, the, all like the stories of pretty much all of them, and recognize that you know. They say like Bauer, they all had Bauer. Recognize they were people, some were scared, some were Bauer's. So it's kind of yeah. balanced. They're human. Yeah, that's human. right. There we go, that's all. That's right. Yep. Yeah. I think he needs to remember, like I feel like we kind of treat, with, or like there's a tendency to treat um, issues of like racism in a pre-Civil War, post-Civil War kind of narrative. Uh, in America, and as if like there weren't any failures in Reconstruction, and that everything was um, solved after the war was over. Um, but as we've seen uh, in class, like following 1865, there were uh, plenty of failures, and, and even like unresolved questions that were left 
um, due to kind of the hectic nature of reconstruction and, and the way that um, we didn't have uh, a, um, a totally streamlined or like effective healing process following the war. And like you still see that today, I'll just look at uh, Karen Cox's book. Like, yep. Um, we're still the fact that we're still struggling with these questions today shows that we did completely heal. Really well said. Really well said. I think um, Reconstruction doesn't until recently. I would say there just hasn't been as much public interest in Reconstruction, and now we have some new monuments. We do have some renewed attention to what happened during Reconstruction, both hopeful and positive, but also incredibly. Uh, troubling that it, it it's a con- again it's a complicated story but the civil war it's almost like it's just easier to want to reenact the you know civil war battles but not want to reenact some moment from from reconstruction because it's really messy but but you're right i would agree with that and it's something we talk about it in the end of our textbook right in the epilogue about it's almost you know just sort of coming to terms with trauma. It's like a national trauma. It's just looking at it with eyes wide open and recognizing the, the you know, parts of it that the human and suffering, psychological both, physical, uh, and taking it as a whole and not just looking at it in this very narrow, narrow triumphant way. You know, it gets back to that point, Hallie, about that, that it was sort of necessary and then we moved on. Yeah, it's not clear that we really have. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like there's a reason that in this class we cover more than just four years. Yes. Right? Like, the Civil War is more than just like that microcosm of actual physical conflict. It's everything before and everything after it. Uh, yep. The context is so important. Excellent. And, and I told you all that this class is supposed to only be on the Civil War. And you can tell, I mean, we're already running out of time and we're not going to get to everything I wanted to with Reconstruction. And even today, you all had some great questions pushing us into the 20th century and today. It's almost like the entirety of American history, if you sit down and think about it and understanding why it happened and going all the way back to the beginnings of the country. And then it's repercussions that still, as you said, they still directly connect us. Any last? Yeah, Sean. Um, the- Confederate, the Confederacy itself did at times ignore states' rights. I thought that yes. was crazy. Yes. Thank you for reminding us of that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I could probably, yeah, write a whole book on this question, right? That, that, and I hope that's much of what you're getting from my class is that just even looking at the story of the Confederacy, in many ways, it doesn't even come close to what the lost cause said. Uh, you can just look at something as basic as the Confederate Constitution and the reality of what the Confederate government did, where they, they could not, right, they could not always, in many cases, follow states' rights or respect states' rights because they, you know, Jefferson Davis and his uh, administration and the Confederate Congress had to do things they felt to win the war as extreme as considering freeing slaves and arming them, that, that the, the war just completely revolutionized, in the words of my advisor, Emory Thomas, revolutionized the, you know, the South. Last comments? How are we doing with time? Okay. Well, thanks, y'all. You did great. Thanks so much for the questions. Really good ones. I appreciate it, and I'll see everybody next Tuesday. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. Interested in hearing more about history? literature, and public affairs? Check out Booknotes Plus. Taking the concept from Brian Lamb's long-running Booknotes TV program, the podcast offers listeners more books and authors. Booknotes Plus features a mix of new interviews with authors and historians, along with some old favorites from the archives. The platform may be different, but the goal is the same. Give listeners the opportunity to learn something new. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.